Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Hydrogen is expected to be a substantial part of the energy mix by 2030, contributing to both direct generation as well as transportation. The conundrum facing many organizations right now is how do you get there? How do you get investment? How do you stay cash flow positive? How do you commercialize your hydrogen technology or your hydrogen production in that intervening period? This conundrum faces the biggest and the smallest of organizations as well as investors and is key to actually getting on that path to 2030. Joining us today is Calvin Johnson. Calvin was a managing director at CIBC, a vice president of trading at Transalta, the Canadian utility. Calvin is now head of commercial at Proton Technologies, a zero-emission and low-cost hydrogen producer. We're going to discuss how to commercialize hydrogen now. What are the pathways available and what are the challenges and hurdles organizations face? Calvin, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here, Paul. Before we get into the crux of the conversation on opportunities to commercialize hydrogen right now in 2021... Can you perhaps give us a quick overview of, of hydrogen itself and, and why you believe it's going to be such an important part of, of energy transition? And I guess in part as well, what, what drew you to this, this sector? Sure. Yeah. So uh, hydrogen, I think, has had some false starts in the past. It's had two. Frankly, I think one was in the, in the 70s and the last one was pretty close to around the, the turn of the century. I think what's what's different this time is that the ecosystem has changed quite a bit, um, and there's a lot more interest, policy support, uh, financial support, um, uh, desire to address uh, climate change, uh, the energy transition, decarbonization, all of those things, ESG requirements. So everything has changed, and that has created, I think, a much more attractive landscape, commercially speaking, to get into hydrogen than it has in the past. Uh, there's things such as renewable deflation, and uh, there's other things that have that have added to that equation as well. Um, but I think now is the time that we uh, we think the hydrogen era is here, and uh, it, it may not unfold as how people think it's going to unfold. But I think it's uh, uh, it's no longer a, a hype. I think there's some reality to the story. And what is particularly attractive about hydrogen and why we uh, have entered this space is that it it butterflies very well with the existing um, infrastructure that we have uh, all across the world, frankly, in, in terms of energy. Um, and it's uh, probably perhaps more complementary to what people would consider to be competing forms of, of, uh, of hydrogen generation or energy, such as renewables. Um, and the reality is that it, 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 it fits very well with the existing infrastructure and complements a lot of other initiatives that are going on in sort of the clean tech space, if you will. And one thing you said to me um, earlier, which struck me, was it is, of course, the smallest element on the periodic table, and therefore it's pretty versatile as well. Yeah, that is correct. Being the uh, it, uh, hydrogen is very unique in the sense that it it doesn't really exist naturally in uh, uh, I guess it does in outer space, but certainly here on on Earth, it, it's a highly reactive molecule. So it it's the smallest element on the periodic table, and normally it, it binds with other things: water, hydrocarbons, uh, nitrogen with ammonia, and all these sorts of things. Um, but essentially, it is the it is the building block, if you will, uh, for a lot of forms of of energy as we know it. There's always an H somewhere in the chemical equation, and hydrogen um, 
uh, has some very unique properties to it. Um, it's, it contains three times the energy by weight compared to diesel or, or jet fuel, for example. Uh, so we look at things volume or sorry, energy density by mass, but volumetrically it's, uh, the energy density by volume is slightly different. It's only about 20 to, to 30% uh, of the volume of natural gas. Um, and in order to transport hydrogen, uh, to get it from A to B, it requires some special handling because it is the smallest molecule in the periodic table. Uh, it has a tendency to embrittle metals and, um, and you need special materials to handle it. Um, but notwithstanding those challenges, and the industry is used to those challenges, actually they've solved all of those challenges around the world, um, it is a very versatile building block for either acting as an energy source outright or acting as an energy carrier. So one of the unique facets of, I think, and this is true of all energy transition, is that we can see or we have a, we're probably better at understanding where we will end up than we necessarily are the route and the path that we're going to take to get there. Um, so people are, are reasonably confident by, say, 2040, it's going to be a significant part of, of the energy mix alongside other renewables and so forth. The challenge is that, you know, in order to get there, you've got to continue to develop technology, the infrastructure, investors want to see returns before 2040. So the real challenge is, is at the moment is there's lots of interest, there's lots of hype, there's lots of discussion, but how can businesses commercialize hydrogen in the short term, generate the, the free cash flow that investors expect or, or, or um, companies expect of subsidiaries or business units, whatever it might be. Um, so I guess that's what we're here to talk to you about today. I guess, can you just talk to that a little bit? I, did I sum that up well? I mean, I guess you're, you also, Proton Energy, are a part of this. Is there a challenge for hydrogen-focused businesses at the moment to really commercialize their projects or, or get investors interested beyond the ESG qualities? I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, there's existing technologies that they're already commercialized. Uh, and as your listeners are, are probably well aware, uh, the vast majority of hydrogen that's made globally is made through uh, steam methane reformation. That is roughly probably about 95%, 94-95% of the, the total hydrogen uh, globally, which is somewhere around probably about 195,000 tons uh, tons a day. But there are other sources. Uh, the other 5% is is electrolysis and other forms of of, uh, of hydrogen production. And, and that's the piece that uh, the market, I think, is really hinged on and, and is really uh, trying to, to grow is the, the 5% as well as attaching uh, CCS carbon capture and storage to to steam methane reformation. And if you look at sort of globally around the world, how how uh, government support is and what goals and objectives are, uh, there's a whole lot of money being thrown at hydrogen uh, these days. And some of it is commercially viable today. Some of it will likely be commercially viable um, in the not too distant future. And some of it, unfortunately, is probably going to require some form of policy support in terms of feed-in tariffs or, uh, you know, PPAs or, or contracts that are actually going to, uh, you know, support the, the ongoing development of, of, of hydrogen. And I think renewables plus electrolysis falls into that category. Um, uh, we're agnostic in terms of technology. I think when you look at the landscape, there's a significant amount of innovation and technological change that's going on within hydrogen. And a surprising uh, chunk of it is actually complementary. And I can talk about that for a little bit. But uh, one of the big challenges is uh, markets are, are 
forecasting that you're going to see a substantial amount of deflation in in the hydrogen space. So that's going to come in the form of either adding CCS to uh, existing SMR facilities or new SMR plus uh, carbon capture and storage or CCS. And then on the renewable side, everybody's aware of the deflation that's gone on in renewable energy, and there's probably more to go there. But the biggest variable is, are we going to see uh, the same uh, massive amounts of deflation uh, on electrolysis. Um, and I think we are. We're going to see definitely see some deflation, but it isn't gonna, is it going to go at the pace that's required to make electrol, uh, renewables plus electrolysis cost competitive with, uh, with other forms of hydrogen? And I think that's to be determined. So there's certain things that are commercially viable today, and there's things that are going to be commercially viable in the not-too-distant future. And then there's going to be things that will be viable longer down the road, and those are probably going to require some form of government uh, support. And there's no shortage of that globally currently. I guess talking about the um, possible buckets of consumption of hydrogen, we'll come on to the, the supply bit of, uh, it later on. But you put them into two major buckets, which I think is a really useful framework. One is hydrogen as an energy source itself, and the other being hydrogen as an energy carrier. Can you take us through, on the energy source side, can you walk us through how hydrogen is being consumed as a, and to, to generate energy right now and, and kind of where we are on those various technologies and commercial plays? Sure. What's interesting about hydrogen, and this, this, this is probably thermodynamics or engineering 101, and it's true for any type, uh, any source of, of energy, is you can look at uh, the uh, thermodynamic efficiency, uh, you get losses, if you will, sort of across uh, any particular pathway. Um, and you can then take a step back and look at the uh, those losses uh, across a whole energy system. And an energy system is quite complex. It involves a variety of different forms of, of, of energy. But one of the things you ultimately want to get to is you, at the end of the day, you want to get an energy source uh, that actually has the, the, is the most efficient to use uh, sort of through the energy system. And everybody can sort of think of, everybody's probably heard the example of coal and, uh, and lights, uh, incandescent bulbs. Um, but from coal production to by the time the electricity hits, uh, hits the light bulb, the incandescent bulb in your house, you've lost 95% of the energy. And so one of the major uh, focuses is improving energy efficiency. And certainly I think the debate is whether uh, hydrogen can be better uh, as an energy source or as an energy carrier, as as an energy source uh, that requires pure hydrogen. And hydrogen requires a lot of energy to actually break it out and separate it from water or separate it from hydrocarbons. And and then the, the challenge remains when you take it as an energy source, how does it stack up in terms of energy density, which is how much energy do you get per unit mass? That's very important for certain forms of, uh, of uh, uh, certain pathways. So when you look at things from an energy source, the, some of the some of the quick wins in terms of climate change and addressing uh, the energy transition are methane blending, which is to just start injecting hydrogen into the into the natural gas distribution system. We can do that today. That's already happening. Um, there's pilots uh, across North America that are happening. The Europeans are kind of well ahead of the curve in terms of that. In fact, they're converting their some of their systems to 100% hydrogen. The debate is going to be, is hydrogen really a good fuel source at the burner tip? And there's going to be a, a debate around some of that. But the short answer is yes. Yes, it is. 
Sorry, so you, you're mixing the hydrogen with the methane because that's just going to overall boost the, I guess, the calorific nature of the, of the fuel. And then what happens to the embrittling of metal and all that, that, that aspect? Yeah, so you can blend probably very comfortably 5% uh, into, into high-pressure pipelines. Um, it really depends on the vintage of the pipeline and metallurgy, um, but it's kind of a function of the partial pressure of the hydrogen and and the metallurgy. And as you're aware, there's different pipes and different vintages and so on. And so, um, But I think a, a low conservative number is probably somewhere in the order of 5%. Once you get to distribution systems, so in other words, you're dealing with local utilities, uh, those systems are operating at a lower pressure and you can blend in usually higher amounts of hydrogen. You can probably get to 15% or 20% before you're going to run into problems at the burner tip um, because uh, hydrogen has different properties. It burns at a different temperature. The flame isn't as, as high and, and it can cause some oscillations and some things to happen in certain burners, but you can very can easily blend in probably 5% and without affecting having material impact on the, uh, the heat content because hydrogen has a lower, uh, energy density by volume. You have to put more of it in effectively to get the same amount of heat out as you would get with methane. That's the bad news. But the good news is it has no carbon associated with it. So it really depends on what the goal of the energy system or the energy pathway is. If it is to decarbonize, then hydrogen and methane blending is, is some low-hanging fruit. To give you some orders of magnitude on, on what that looks like, say, for example, in North America, the United States is probably... Uh, if you were to blend in 5% um, hydrogen, you'd probably get somewhere around 35,000 tons a day of hydrogen is what that would require for the whole gas grid, if you will, in North America. That's larger uh, than the current market for hydrogen in, in the United States currently. The same numbers hold true for, for Canada as well. Uh, if we were to do methane blending into our demand, we'd end up with, with a higher demand for hydrogen than what we're currently producing hydrogen. So it, it, is a, it, it is a quick way to scale up hydrogen. It is a quick, whether you attach it to uh, renewables plus electrolysis or SMR or CCS or even our technology, it's, it's a great way to accelerate that demand and start the decarbonization process. And then you can blend up from there. The next step in that equation is power generation. You can, you can, we can talk about that a little bit, but you can blend uh, much higher levels into into power generation depending on the facilities. And I, I presume, so this is the emphasis of decarbonization. I guess it's a somewhat regional because you're going to need carbon credit support um, either at the local or national level to really, I guess, propagate this. As well as, you know, this is particular to blue and green hydrogen. There's no point in, in uh, blending gray hydrogen. You're just compounding problem. That is correct. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that, that, uh, that equalizes all of those is putting a price on carbon. And that's happening. That, that landscape is actually accelerating. Um, you know, the Europeans are doing it. Uh, the, uh, the, the Chinese have a, have a game plan to start the decarbonization process. And um, who knows what's going to happen with the, the new administration in the United States. But certainly um, they are talking about uh, trying to put a price on carbon. But that's the thing that uh, that's the, the piece of the equation that uh, allows you to, to determine, you know, um, whether it's it, it basically puts a price on the externalities, which then sort of bridges the gap between a variety of different forms of generating hydrogen. But the biggest Variable is really going to be do you or do you want to um, 
start addressing climate change and, and decarbonize. So you theoretically could even do that without a carbon price. But yeah, the, it all depends on what the goals or objectives are. Uh, they recently announced, uh, this was actually on Friday, uh, so this call is relatively timely, but as as your listeners are probably aware, we do have a carbon tax in Canada. It's currently about $30 a tonne. They're going to be increasing that up to $170 a tonne um, within 10 years. So in Canada, in Europe, and elsewhere around the world, you are going to get a price on carbon. And from a commercial perspective, the other way that it might come at you, even though you might not have a carbon price domestically, is that uh, you're going to start to see border adjustments put on goods and services. So uh, that's that's part of the sort of the global step towards putting a price on carbon. So that that ultimately is going to help sort of levelize the playing field, if you will, between the various types of hydrogen uh, generation. So I stopped you on there on, on the power generation piece. Is the technology available right now just to, to to generate electricity from hydrogen? You know, does it take a lot of, um, I guess, refurbishment to convert plants? Where where are we at on that sort of direct fuel use? It's already there. Um, there is currently probably close to about six point five gigawatts that's uh, in the United States that's that's hydrogen compatible in terms of generation. Uh, I think at the margin, every gas plant is looking at how to emissions-proof their facilities. We are seeing the major manufacturers of turbines have come out with hydrogen-compatible turbines already um, that can take up to 100% hydrogen. So I don't think there's any issues there in terms of the technology. It's just a question of uh, application. Existing uh, generation facilities can blend in hydrogen without suffering substantial decays in their heat rates. And uh, so sim- analogous to, to to methane blending in your gas distribution system, you can do the same thing on existing power assets. And uh, it does. It, you can blend in certain percentages uh, before it'll start to have an impact on the heat rates in your economics. But that's offset by the gains that you're going to pick up in terms of uh, whether there's any carbon taxes or emissions um, um, you know attributes that you that you have to deal with. One of the things we've seen a good example is what's going on in Canada currently. Alberta has uh, is in the process of uh, switching uh, their coal assets to natural gas, and there's been a flurry of announcements recently where most of them are flipping to some form of hydrogen compatibility. So being able to burn. Uh, a large percentage of hydrogen or either 100% hydrogen. So there's no technological risk there. The, the, the technology exists and it's, you're starting to see it deployed around the world. Fascinating. So then I guess that brings us on to the third energy source as you defined it, which is in transportation. Can you give us a, an overview of where we are on, on that side? That's the really interesting one. That is where the the characteristics of hydrogen are either going to either gonna hurt it or, or help it. Um, we're we're agnostic in terms of technology and policy support, so we really don't know what what pathway is going to be moving forward with uh, through time. Uh, but the consensus is, if you just run the numbers on basically the, the the engineering, the physics of it, is that hydrogen is probably more applicable to heavy transport. So that would be long haul, you know, heavy duty shipping and even even marine. Um, and the reason for that is that um, it uh, electrification does not really work that well in those in those sectors. So uh, it's pretty hard to uh, to uh, put batteries in 
uh, jets, for example, and have them flying across the, uh, you know, the Atlantic. So I think it's going to be related to basically it's back to the energy density, how much energy to get per unit weight and how much can you put on a plane or a boat or uh, and so on. Uh, so there's lots of applications for transportation for, for hydrogen in terms of fuel cells. In fact, fuel cells probably have an advantage over 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 pure electrification and batteries, but they are complementary. I think that's part of the puzzle that I think perhaps most people don't understand is that a lot of the progress that's been made in battery technology, electric battery, you know, for electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles, is readily applicable and has been uh, has helped with fuel cell electric vehicles. Fuel cell electric vehicles can also go both ways. So you can you can use it for a source of energy or you can convert it back. And so it's quite applicable. We think there's going to be applications uh, for fuel cells in terms of aviation, definitely heavy-duty transportation, um, as uh, long-haul heavy-duty transportation, marine uh, transportation. And interestingly enough, you're seeing it it, it used um, on a, for example, forklifts in in a lot of uh, indoor facilities. You want something that that burns clean. You don't have to deal with a lot. You can recharge very very quickly. Um, and you have something that requires a fair amount of energy density, uh, then, you know, fuel cells on forklifts, for example, are widely being used, uh, you know, across, across the world today. So that, so those are the sort of applications where I think you're going to see, uh, hydrogen, uh, excel, whether things get built out at the retail level, uh, for, you know, hydrogen vehicles and fueling stations and all that sort of stuff. We're agnostic on that. Um, I think that if you look at the, uh, uh, the, the physics of it, you could probably argue that battery electric vehicles would have an advantage, but who knows? Uh, we could see a breakthrough in terms of uh, battery technology or fuel cell technology. So that landscape is shifting, but right now, definitely the applications are probably on uh, on the heavier side of the equation. So that would include marine, heavy-duty transport, and aviation. Do you have any concept or any indication of scale right now You know, in terms of consumption on the transportation side? Yeah, that's a, I would say it's very limited. It's currently, I would say there's virtually, other than some things that you're seeing in Europe, uh, there's not a, a substantial amount that I think is going on in the transportation, in the, what, what I would call at scale in the transportation sector. There's lots, forklifts are probably ex- the exception. Uh, you're starting to see fuel cell vehicles, uh, refueling stations uh, getting built. Uh, that's uh, uh, that I would say is growing, but what's also interesting is you can also blend hydrogen into into diesel engines. So you can you can with very minor retrofitting, you can use hydrogen as an injection into diesel to substantially reduce the carbon footprint and increase performance. So whether that is an avenue that takes off or not remains to to be seen. So there's lots of technological innovation that's going on, but in terms of things that are at scale, it's very small at this stage. Excellent. So that's the the energy source world, and it seems like uh, right off the bat you've got that that methane blending, and you know could be a significant consumer pretty quickly um, if it were supported by. I guess we've come on to supply, but there needs to be cheaper supply and, and and the carbon support or pricing. The second big bucket as an energy carrier. Uh, what do you mean by that, and, and can we dig into that aspect? Sure. So. As an energy carrier, hydrogen can uh, be combined with other elements on the periodic table. So this is sort of chemistry 101, and I, uh, and I apologize for describing it that way. But essentially, you can combine hydrogen with other things on the on the periodic table to create, uh, for example, you can 
to create ammonia, you can combine it with with nitrogen, create ammonia. The ammonia infrastructure is already there uh, due to the agricultural sector. So we know how to move ammonia around the world. We know how to transport it. We can transport it via pipeline, via rail, and so on. Another example would be combining it with with carbon to create uh, methanol uh, or to create uh, synthetic fuels. Uh, and that would uh, there's some some really interesting innovation going on right now in terms of using uh, negative carbon that comes from negative emissions. So in other words, they're extracting the uh, the carbon from the air, combining it with green um, hydrogen to create synthetic fuels. Uh, there's lots of pilots around the world that are uh, working on that. So you can create synthetic diesel and these sorts of things. Um, and then uh, the, the last area where energy is a carrier or sort of hydrogen is a, is a carrier would be in the petrochemical market. You're taking hydrogen, you're combining it with something else to produce, uh, to produce you know, plastics or other, uh, other building, uh, petrochemical building blocks. So energy carrier simply just means you're combining it with, with another uh, molecule to make the, the, the transportation or to make the uh, to, to use in, in, in different markets. And that's what makes hydrogen unique. It has all of the applications to go into the agricultural market, to go into the synthetic fuels market. It can help with refining, can help with oil upgrading. Uh, it's definitely a, uh, the critical building block in terms of petrochemicals. And that's one area where I think we can say very definitively that I don't think you'll see anything knock hydrogen off its roost. It'll be the number number one uh, building block, if you will, for the petrochemical industry. Which it is already. It's just that's grey hydrogen, right, which is also a huge contributor to carbon emissions. Um, it's, so it's just actually adding that carbon capture piece in. Um, I, I just want to stay on that because I find that fascinating because, you know, we ourselves are, are doing searches for ammonia talent and traders and so forth because can we just dig into that a little bit? The concept is you're blending hydrogen to create ammonia because that's the most stable and efficient way of transporting hydrogen. Sure. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's the most stable. I would say that it's we've been doing it already and that all that infrastructure is there. And the question is whether ammonia actually builds out and you start to use it as a fuel source. And there is some very interesting technology that's going on innovation in that regard. So you theoretically could run ammonia through a turbine and you can use it for power generation you could use it for transportation so there's some very interesting things going on in terms of expanding what ammonia is used for um but yeah it's relatively straightforward you take hydrogen you combine it with with nitrogen and you've got ammonia and now you've got a liquid well you've got a gaseous that you you can liquefy it and uh, it has a higher energy higher energy density it's easier to move around than than uh, pure hydrogen which you either have to uh, pressurize uh, at, at relatively high pressures or liquefy uh, and, and that there's obviously energy associated with doing it. By, by combining it with ammonia, you can utilize the existing infrastructure um, and you can certainly target more aggressively the uh, um, agricultural markets. And that's one of the avenues that the agricultural markets can actually use to decarbonize most of the, the um, ammonia that's made. Uh, not all of it, but a chunk of it is is a substantial portion of it is made through effectively SMR. So unless it has CCS associated with it, um, uh, you're 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 getting a, a a carbon footprint associated with the agricultural sector that you could decrease relatively easy by using uh, 
uh, using green or hydrogen. But ammonia is a very interesting avenue. The Chinese, or sorry, the Japanese have made a bet on using ammonia as both a energy source as well as an energy carrier. Um, and uh, we'll see if uh, we'll see how that uh, that unfolds. Um, and I, I think when you take a step back and you say, okay, well, is hydrogen going to be used in ammonia or is it going to be used in methanol or creating some form of synthetic fuels or hydrocarbons, petrochemicals, uh, or is it going to be used as an energy source? I think it really depends on geographically where you're at, what, what, uh, what, uh, what sort of the energy stack looks like, if you will. Um, uh, what do you have in terms of renewables? What do you have in terms of existing energy, existing infrastructure, and so on? So I think it's going to be a very regional thing where you're going to see in one particular area they might might, might be making a significant bet on hydrogen, and other areas they might be making, or sorry, on ammonia, whereas in other areas they might be making a significant bet on just pure electrification. Um, so there's so many options, there's so many pathways. I think you have to be realistic and and keep a uh, uh, just have a, a a portfolio of real options, if you will, to kind of capitalize on what you think uh, the most the most value is that you can extract. And hydrogen uh, ha- definitely gives you the most option value in terms of determining which which pathway it's going to go. I guess I want to move on to the supply piece because all of this is predicated on having sufficient blue or green hydrogen to to supply the market at a reasonable cost and at a reasonable scale. Um, before we move on to blue hydrogen, can you just, where, where are we at with green hydrogen? Um, I think there's still lots of skepticism out there as to whether it really is ever going to reach that, reach that energy efficiency. But can you just talk a little about this, the scale green hydrogen has reached so far? That's using electrolysis or renewables um, driven electrolysis to create the hydrogen. Yes. First of all, I'd like to take a step back and saying, I think when you start putting colors on hydrogen, it gets kind of confusing. I think what's probably most important is probably three things. It's, it's cost, it's life cycle emissions, and then it's probably your, your financing costs. And those are all going to vary slightly by, by jurisdiction. But, but if you were to look at quote unquote, sort of green hydrogen, it is the most expensive currently as we speak. And how hydrogen is priced is it's priced per kilogram, it's priced per weight. Uh, those costs currently, the numbers are probably somewhere between, I would say, 3 to $7 US per, per kilogram. That's the sector that's really betting on a significant amount of deflation in, in uh, electrolysis to drive, those, to drive those hydrogen costs down. And then once you get into the blue and the, the gray, their cost structures are quite a bit lower, and they're going to fluctuate anywhere probably between one to maybe three dollars U.S. per kilogram, depending on whether it's natural gas with CCS or whether it's uh, some other form of of hydrogen generation uh, through coal or what have you. So um, the the cost structure currently is stacked against uh, renewables plus electrolysis, but we do anticipate that you're going to see a, a a decent amount of deflation um, on uh, electrolyzers and so on. As you know, it's just learning curves. It's right law. It's 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 rights law. As you get to that to those tipping points, you are going to see improvements, and we're already seeing that. The size of the market right now globally for for green hydrogen, so renewables plus electrolysis, is very very small. You know, put it in perspective. I think we're dealing somewhere close to about. Uh, 90 megawatts, and I think the European Union wants to scale that up to uh, to uh, 10x or uh, uh, or 100x that in the next basically um, you know 10 to 15 years. So the scale that they're betting on 
electrolysis and how much those costs could come down is absolutely staggering. Like it's, these are, these are massive growth numbers, which I think is why there's a fair amount of um, interest in, uh, in that space, just given the, the staggering growth potential, but that currently is not going to be um, economically or commercially viable, I think without uh, some form of feed in tariff or some form of policy support. Uh, and maybe that is high carbon prices or carbon taxes or what have you, but um, <clears throat> they need to bridge the gap between renewables and uh, gray or blue hydrogen. And the expectation is it's roughly going to take about 10 years to get there. So, okay. So that's the, in quotes, green hydrogen. Can you now give us some idea about the scale and the state of you know, blue hydrogen or, or this uh, hydrogen with carbon created by carbon capture? Yeah. So the existing supply, if you will, of hydrogen globally is uh, most of it, 95% of it is made through, through a mess, SMR. And I would say there's not a lot of, uh, uh, CCS that's associated with that. Um, so that's really the, the trade-off. You've got uh, uh, electrolysis uh, that uh, is, ex- is is quite expensive now, but is expected to decline over time. Um, and I mentioned those numbers probably between $3 and $7 uh, uh, US per, per kilogram of hydrogen. Um, to add CCS uh, to existing sources of, of gray hydrogen is probably going to cost somewhere around 50 cents a kilogram. And so the real debate is going to be, do those costs come down as well? And I think they probably will, but there's not a whole lot of massive CCS at scale around the world. There, it, you know, we, we have some in Canada, there's some in the U.S., there's some in Europe. It's happening. And it's probably ahead of the curve in terms of scale compared to electrolyzers. But the question is going to be, are you expecting to see that 50 cent cost of uh, CCS to to come down? I would argue yes, but it's probably not going to come down. You're not going to see the pace of deflation that you're going to see on on electrolyzers. So the conventional wisdom uh, or the the people who are making forecasts on these things are expecting that you're probably going to see some equilibrium within probably 10-ish years or maybe after 10 years. So what's going to equalize things in the meantime is probably going to be um, carbon taxes. But if you look at uh, existing gray hydrogen right now, we're producing that probably for under a dollar a kilogram to probably, depending on the source of supply, and it varies around the world, which is the cost of natural gas, probably somewhere between $1 and $3. And, uh, and then that's probably between $150 and Roughly the same thing. I'd probably say around three to three dollars to three and a quarter if you were to add CCS to 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 that as well. So, gray or blue hydrogen uh, is um, really kind of a function of your gas costs, and those can vary quite dramatically around the world. So it's a very regional comparison. But there's the race, if you will, is really between deflation on electrolysis and how that's going to catch up. When is that going to catch up with uh, gray? hydrogen or gray and and blue hydrogen there's also brown hydrogen that goes into the mix and there's other colors as well but but that's kind of a rough uh overview of kind of what that cost structure looks like and what the differences and this brings us on to proton technologies can you talk about your business uh, and where it fits into this because it's bringing quite an innovative technological solution to hydrogen production so proton technologies is a clean tech technology company focused on hydrogen production from existing hydrocarbon uh, resources, primarily oil and, and natural gas. In fact, the, the, the older, the better. Uh, the processes that we use are, are patented uh, or in the, in the approval stage for patents uh, in over 100 countries around the world. 
and we've sold approximately 10 licenses to countries around the world to start developing the technology. The, the process effectively uh, takes the H out of hydrocarbons and leaves the rest, including the CO2, behind in the reservoir. It's analogous to in-situ uh, steam methane reformation, but it's much more complex in terms of the, the reactions. The process basically involves us oxidizing a reservoir and then using proprietary uh, technology to recover uh, pure hydrogen. The carbon remains behind, and the big question is, is it similar to CCS or carbon capture and storage? And the answer is no. Uh, we don't overpressure the reservoir or add more. We stay within the native uh, reservoir characteristics, and essentially the carbon precipitates out and eventually forms uh, carbonate rock. Uh, it's a leading technology in an, on a number of important dimensions, we believe. Number one is incredibly cost effective. Our, our costs, including OPEX and CAPEX at scale, is 25 cents a kilogram, which is uh, substantially below all other forms of hydrogen production currently by a very large margin. It has the lowest life cycle emissions profile, uh, and that's simply because we leave the emissions behind and we don't bring anything to the surface, and we have a much lower footprint at the surface, say, compared to, for example, uh, renewables plus uh, electrolysis. It's scalable, and the reserves are very long life. They're measured in even small re reservoirs are measured in decades. And the larger ones, for example, we've done the math for on the Canadian uh, oil sands deposits, and those are literally hundreds of years of hydrogen supply. And the, the, the last important dimension is that it repurposes or uses the existing oil and gas infrastructure and provides a pathway uh, for the industry to start the decarbonization process and transition to a hydrogen economy. So we're very excited about the technology and uh, it's, uh, it's very applicable to helping us address uh, the decarbonization immediately. Which I guess brings us in some sense full circle as well, because what I presume the big advantage of that is that, and this is hydrogen itself, right? It has something for everyone and can leverage existing infrastructure. I imagine that kind of technology is music to the ears of um, large producers of hydrocarbons who are wondering how to, uh, how to manage and navigate energy transition, uh, having spent you know, decades building up um, reserves uh, of hydrocarbons to, to, to tap. Uh, and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll put um, your website in our, in our show notes. I think it's fascinating technology. When, when you step back, what do you think are the biggest challenges or hurdles or where's the rate limiting factor right now in the hydrogen markets? Um, it doesn't seem to be finance. Um, you know, you've got lots of organizations lining up to, in some ways, who are very interested in, in these types of projects, but obviously looking for returns. You've got regulation. We talked a bit about like the need for pricing of carbon to uh, level the playing field to some extent. Um, but you've got demand. You've got all these sources of demand, but some of them are pretty nascent levels. And then you've got the supply piece, which in reality, blue and green hydrogen supply is still very, very limited and, and not at scale. Which of those sort of factors, or maybe there's another one, kind of unlocks the market, do you think, in the next year or two? I think the biggest variable at this stage is really demand. Uh, most of the demand for uh, hydrogen is really on-purpose demand at this stage. So it would be an SMR facility at a, uh, in a, at a refinery, for example. So that's on-purpose demand. The uh, uh, So to actually start the decarbonization process immediately, and we had discussed methane blending and blending into power generation and those sorts of things, you can do that immediately. 
and the scale of that would would two x the the hydrogen demand domestically, domestically in Canada as well as the United States, for example. So the biggest stumbling block currently is waiting for the regulators, uh, you know, safety standards, codes, all those sorts of things to to kind of catch up. I would say right now the market's moving faster than um, than uh, than the regulations, and it's a difficult thing to. Uh, uh, to address because if you are looking at trying to determine what the standards are and let's say that you've decided that you're a hydrogen producer and you want to put uh, put hydrogen into the pipeline in the U.S. Gulf Coast, for example, and it's going to go up to the U.S. Northeast, uh, you basically have to do, uh, or maybe it's it's in the Appalachia area and it's going to other marketers, you literally have to go from the supply and do the, do the engineering and approvals and analysis of safety standards and codes right through to the burner tip. Um, so that includes residential, commercial, and industrial demand, and that—that's probably the largest. That's the biggest um, uh, constraint, I think, at, at this particular stage. I think uh, the power generation guys—it's—it's it's a lot easier. They can inject that directly into inlet in terms of the power plants, and certain distribution companies uh, can inject hydrogen, and they're currently already doing it. There's pilots that are currently running in, in North America. So the biggest stumbling block is at scale being to do it across the, the existing energy infrastructure. And it, and it is, a, uh, as you had mentioned, I think it's a pathway that it starts the decarbonization process, but it doesn't get us 100% there. But it is going to provide an opportunity for companies, and I hate to use this terminology, but uh, to pivot um, maybe five years down the road into or 10 years down the road or whatever the time frame is to start doing, you know, hundred percent hydrogen. But right now I would say it's definitely rules, regulations, safety standards, codes, et cetera. Interesting. Well, it's been a, um, a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Look forward to connecting back, uh, you know, in a year or so and, and see where we're at. Cause I think this is a story that there's just, we can just see it from the interest in these episodes. It's a, uh, it's a live discussion for everyone across the energy spectrum. And, um, there's a hunger and a thirst for information out there. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, you know, hydrogen is a very exciting, it's a very exciting industry, I think, to be in just given all of the technological change and also just considering all the different pathways that it can take. So we're, we're very excited to be in that space. And uh, yeah, we're, we're hopefully we'll be able to make a meaningful contribution to, to the market. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Calvin. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.